Welcome to the Make Tech Human podcast presented by Wired and enabled by Nokia. I'm your host, Matt Myra. Make Tech Human is the year-long exploration of where technology is headed and how it is impacting humanity. It's a multi-platform program with stories, interviews, videos, and podcasts. And of course, guys, you can check this all out at wired.com forward slash make tech human. You're probably thinking to yourselves, boy, I'm listening to this podcast, but I'd really like to know the goal of it. Well, guess what? I'm about to tell you. Our goal with the podcast is to host a series of discussions and debates that will impact the global debate, human behavior, and even product development and policymaking. We've been doing it for a few weeks, guys, and I have not seen any new products from you nor policies. Your human behavior has changed a bit, but not enough for me to be super happy with it. So get on that. Today, we're talking to two of the Make Tech Human agents of change. They are 17 global innovators, entrepreneurs, and activists who are using technology to expand human possibility, opportunity, and inclusion, essentially doing all those things we talk about at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, you can find out who the other 15 Make Tech Human Agents of Change are by checking it out on the website at wired.com forward slash make tech human. And the most important thing about the Make Tech Human Agents of Change is that they're not just thinking and talking about the ways to tackle some of these world problems. They're actually doing something about it and having a real world impact today. Uh, which brings us, speaking of today, to today's guests. Lila Jana is the founder and CEO of Sama Group and has created a platform for digital work to employ and empower impoverished people around the world. And Luis Von Ahn is the founder and CEO of Duolingo, which offers free language instruction. And I've been saying Duolingo for so long because Lingua was the name of Homer Simpson's grammar robot that corrects his grammar. It's a one episode. Don't worry about it. Lila and Luis started these companies to help people around the world find meaningful work and get out of poverty. Incidentally, they're both experts in crowdsourcing and talking with them made me think about crowdsourcing in ways I'd never thought of before. Uh, for instance, I just thought it was a cheap labor. I didn't think it was something really particularly useful on, on, on the end of people who are doing the labor. And I just hadn't really thought about that end of the spectrum, of the people actually doing the crowdsourcing. So this episode is really a treat, and I'm actually going to let these guys introduce themselves. Uh, joining us in the conversation, of course, is Melanie Cornwell of Wired. She was kind enough to sit in on the conversation, ask some great questions, and, and be awesome all around. Uh, our guests are now going to introduce themselves, as we like to do here on the Make Tech Human podcast. Take it away, guests. So, my name is Luis Juanan, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Duolingo. Uh, I am also a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And Duolingo is basically a, a free way to learn languages. Uh, it is now the most common way, the most popular way to learn languages in the world. We have about 110 million users worldwide uh, learning languages on Duolingo. Um, and uh, we started it um, in order to give people a free way to learn to learn languages. Um, and the, the thinking was that uh, most of the people who are learning languages in the world, there's about 1.2 billion people in the world learning a foreign language. Uh, and the majority of them, uh, 800 million of them, 
uh, to satisfy three properties. First of all, they're learning English. Second, the reason they're learning English is to get a better job. And third, uh, they are of low socioeconomic conditions. So most people in the world that are learning a foreign language are doing so to get out of poverty and they're trying to learn English to get out of poverty. But at the same time, most of the ways there were to learn a foreign language were, were very expensive. So, for example, in the U.S., there's this thing called Rosetta Stone, which is like $500. Uh, in Latin America, there's a thing called Open English, which costs about $1,000. So the irony was uh, most of the people that are trying to learn a foreign language are doing so to get out of poverty, but it seems you need $1,000 to get out of poverty. Hmm. Um, so we started Duolingo, which is basically an entirely free way to learn languages. And um, now it, it's grown a lot, and it's, it's an app. Uh, on Android and iOS devices, and also our website. That's great. Great, Myla. Sure. I should add that I'm a frequent user of Duolingo to brush up on my French and Spanish and Portuguese. So I have to thank Luis <laughs> <laughs> for saving Good. me a thousand dollars. Although I'm not in his target demographic. Uh, hi, I'm Lila Jana. I'm the founder and CEO of Sama Group. Sama means equal in Sanskrit. And we have two programs. The first is called Sama Source that got started in 2008 in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, mm -hmm. We work on the problem of poverty by connecting young people mostly um, and a majority of women and other marginalized groups to work over the Internet. We uh, work with people who are part of the 2 billion people global underclass that makes less than about $2.50 a day. And we move them to an average income of about four times that by connecting them to digital work with large, mostly technology and data companies. Um, this model has many benefits. First, we're getting companies like Google and Microsoft to give us these data processing contracts to directly pay for poverty alleviation, saving taxpayers and donors money. Um, and the second is as a nonprofit, we also have a sustainable source of revenue. Through this model, we've moved about 7,000 people from an average income of about $2 a day to an average income of about $8 a day, and about 90% of them following our program um, find themselves in higher education or higher paying employment in the formal economy. We have a second program that we started out of Sama Source called Sama School that gives people the essential training we've developed at Sama Source to flourish in the new internet economy. So we train low-income people across the U.S. and in East Africa on how to harness the internet economy to make money in the short term by setting up profiles on sites like Upwork um, in the U.S., sites like TaskRabbit, Care.com, Lyft, and Uber, um, where they can take advantage of all of these new opportunities in the gig economy. Um, and I think it's being really overlooked by governments and by a lot of larger nonprofit organizations focused on job training. Now, something like 40% of the U.S. labor force has shifted to, towards contingent labor, this kind of contract labor. Um, so, so we work on those two issues. And with Sama School, we've just launched an online program that's free at samaschool.org, where anyone can sign up to take this digital literacy class. And we have some pretty good outcomes so far about 40% of the people who finish our training end up increasing their incomes through online work within the first month or two after finishing the training. And it's all wow. free. Wow. Wow. That's great. Um, so I guess I would, I'll, I'll start with a question for both of you um, before we delve into the specifics, which is 
you know, we're in we're in the political season in the U.S. and uh, the gig economy seems like it's it is getting politicized by candidates um, in in obvious ways. Um, and so I'm wondering what you think about that. That you know, where the gig economy itself is is a point of controversy. Um, do, Luis, do you have thoughts on that? And then we'll go back to Lila. Um, maybe, maybe uh, this seems closer to Lila stuff. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. In fact, so I'm I'm doing this call from Arkansas. Yesterday, I was in rural Arkansas on the Mississippi River Delta interviewing students who'd finished our program out there. And I met one man who's a veteran, former Marine, who makes $9 an hour taking calls for a virtual call center from home. And on the one hand, I think the gig economy is incredible. It opens up all kinds of opportunity to people who are in regions like rural, you know, rural, the rural Mississippi Delta that have very few traditional employment opportunities. Um, And especially the work that can be done not just found through the internet, but actually done through the internet is really empowering for people. Um, this man actually got a loan to cover the cost of a laptop and, an, and a better internet connection at home, and he paid back the loan very quickly, I think in the first month and a half, and now he's able to, to earn this money. So on the plus side, it opens up the possibilities for people who are restricted because of geography or because they happen to be you know, born in the wrong place. It opens up those boundaries to enter the workforce. On the downside, all of the labor protections that we evolved for good reason in this country and in many countries around the world over, you know, during the period of industrialization haven't yet evolved to meet the needs of the gig economy worker. So this man that I spoke with can work up to 98 hours a week. In fact, he said he's getting a lot of pressure from the employer to do that. He's offered no medical benefits no benefits of any kind, no paid sick leave, anything like that. Um, and so the same kind of infrastructure that we developed around traditional jobs has yet to develop around these new gig economy jobs. I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility of the platforms like Uber or Lyft or Care.com to provide all of the same benefits, especially since a number of workers on those platforms don't work full-time jobs. But I do think it's a conversation we need to have as a country. And I was a little disappointed, and I know that the – presidential debates tend to take on a different tone after the primaries, but I was really disappointed that we didn't dive deeply into any of those issues. Mm. I think there's a lot of room for government and policy innovation to provide some of those protections for workers. Many of the companies in this space would be happy to participate in some way, even if it means taking a what would mostly be a, a relatively small hit on margin to ensure that these worker protections are in place. I just think we need we need new thinking. Got it. Um, Anna Louise, uh, Lila mentioned uh, that, you know, these people who sometimes have difficulty finding work are victims of geography or being born in the wrong place. And I think um, that idea has informed your um, starting of Duolingo. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's the that's one of the biggest one of the biggest issues that that, that the world's uh, uh, dealing with now. Um, if you look at uh, the the global educational system, it's it's really not doing a great job in many places. Um, there are the fact that there are a billion adults in the world that they can't that can't read and write is uh, really shouldn't be happening in the 21st century. 
Um, in I was born in Guatemala and in my country, um, the people who graduate out of high school, um, only 24% of them have the required reading and writing level, and only 7% of them have the required math level. And on top of everything else, only 50% of the people ever graduate out of high school. Wow. So wow. that, that uh, I mean, <laughs> being born in the wrong place means that. Um, and, and what we want to do with Duolingo is be able to provide everybody uh, equal access to the best education. And that's, that's what we try to design for. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's really what, what, um, you know, excites us every day. So, um, the fact that, for example, we have, we just finished a contract with the, uh, signing a contract with the government of Colombia, uh, where all their kids in their public schools are going to be using, uh, Duolingo to learn English. Uh, there they have a problem that the English teachers, don't know English. Wow. Uh, oh, so wow. we got to figure out a way yeah. to teach them. But, but what's happening now is that the, they're, you know, in, in all their schools, uh, they're using Duolingo to learn. In their public schools, they're using Duolingo to learn, to learn English. Now, if you go to a public school in a country like Colombia, that means you're very poor. Uh, because if you have the, the, the public educational system in, in most of these countries is, is not very good. And if you have any, any kind of money, you, you try to put your kids into a, a, a very cheap private school. Um, so that means kind of the, the, you know, very poor people are using Duolingo. And on the other end, uh, we have people like, um, so for example, Bill Gates uses Duolingo to, to learn a language, the richest guy in the world. And that is what we wanted to achieve. The fact that the richest man in the world uses the same educational system, uh, the educational platform as, you know, people from public schools in developing countries. Uh, that means that, you know, more money can't buy you a better education. And that, that's, that's what we wanted to do. It, wow. it's a, it's, it is interesting uh, when you hear about those statistics from high school age uh, in Guatemala of 7% have the required math. When you, is, is math just, is it a problem much like the English teachers not knowing English? Is it a problem that they aren't quite uh, grasping math the way they should as well? Uh, it's, it's a lot of problems. I mean, a lot of um, not because they don't want to, it's just yeah. because, you know, they themselves didn't get the necessary training. They're also, you know, being a teacher in a public school in, in, in a country like that pays very, very little. Um, and they usually are completely overextended. Um, they're, you know, they're teaching way more kids than they should be. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of a problem at all levels, but, but, you know, this is, it's, it's funny. Uh, it sounds really bad in, in Guatemala, but if you think about the U S um, there, this math is one of the few subjects where you literally have to study it every single year yeah. for 12 years. You have to study math five days a week, five days a week, 12 years. The average person who graduates high school from the U S the math level that they have is they can add fractions. That is what they were able to learn in 12 years, every single day of their life. Hmm. Uh, and I mean, you should, you know, that's depressing. Uh, so maybe a, a you need an app to teach math as well, Luis. Oh, I'm yeah, sure he's working on it. Something else. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something else that, that that needs to happen. And and the thing is, you know, adding fractions that can be taught to somebody in like three months. Like that's it. Yeah, you should be able to teach somebody how to add fractions in three months. So I don't know what happens for the other eleven point some years. <laughs> oh man. I, I do want to say though. I mean, we work in 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 Kenya, Uganda, <clears throat> India, and many countries in East Africa where. Well, I would say in, in East Africa, in Kenya and Uganda particularly, the English literacy is quite high. It's, it's shockingly high in some rural areas. 
um, even though the dynamics that Luis has mentioned are very much at play there, people somehow have managed to learn English. It's the colonial language of those countries. And I would say that the challenge is that even armed with the knowledge of, you know, armed with good English skills, there's still such a lack of opportunity. So I, I feel like education is a huge part of the problem and, and one major step. But we also need to look at what happens to the people who are educated in those countries who are prevented from having any sort of economic opportunity. And I feel like it's, it's especially dangerous when, when you have large numbers of educated people who can consume Western media and become aware of what they're missing um, to for them to remain in poverty and disconnected from global employment opportunities. But they're, they're two sides of, I think, the same, right. the same issue, which is poverty. So in, in terms of that challenge that you're describing, so what is the biggest barrier to those, um, to those populations finding, you know, meaningful work within their own company, countries? Well, um, you know, at the risk of, of creating a very unstroked problem that I don't have an answer to. Right. The challenge of capitalism is that capital can move freely across borders, but labor can't. Mm. And, you know, I think that's at the crux of so many issues and the crux of many of the issues that have been talked about in these debates. And, um, you know, a lot of people are afraid of what happens when we open up at least the borders of work, online work, let alone when we physically open up borders, right? Um, and I think that that's you know, that's one of the major drivers of poverty right now in, in my mind is that workers can't go where they're most needed around the world. And for various reasons, you don't have the sort of opportunities in many low-income countries that you see in in big wealthy countries like the U.S. or even to some extent like China and India. Um, and so, and I would say within these big countries, there are islands of poverty that exist where people are disconnected from you know, from work locally. So I think I think the internet has massive potential to erase some of those boundaries and allow labor to move freely across at least a few types of borders for knowledge work. Um, but I I'm of the opinion that more openness and things like guest worker permits would make probably the biggest difference to a large number of people living in poverty. We know actually that the biggest contributor to I mean the, the biggest force for foreign aid for, for global development has been remittances so when people you know are born in places like rural guatemala and make it to the u.s and start making money and send money back home those flows of cash dwarf any sort of foreign aid that western governments send to poor countries so you know i I feel like more of that um, movement is actually a really good thing for poor people but it's going to take a lot of policy changes to make that happen so capitalism is the problem and the solution essentially in that (laughs) <laughs> and the, um, the right the artificial constraints that we've um, put around people's movements that aren't really part of the theory of capitalism, but that we've artificially created, are one of the biggest challenges to people escaping poverty. Mm-hmm. And Luis, actually, so I I read that um, Duolingo is making um, German lessons available for Arab speakers as of this past weekend. Is that correct? Yeah, we're 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 trying to do that. We're we're starting German uh, soon, also Swedish and French for for the refugees. Um, I don't know I don't know how much it'll help, but we're 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 trying to do that. We weren't we typically the new new languages that we offer are are based on um, uh, kind of demand, uh, and in this case we we decided to fast track these because we think that it'll it'll help a lot. 
what do you find, Luis? What do you find uh, across the user uh, database? What do you find is the most common language learning another language? Is it English learning Spanish? Uh, well, the, the most the most the most commonly learned language is English mm. everywhere, um, except except for English speaking countries. Uh, in English speaking countries, it's usually Spanish. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, but if, if it is not an English speaking country by far, it, it, it's pretty overwhelmingly English, wow. at least for us. That's fascinating. Okay. And didn't I read that one of your top languages is Italian? Or yeah, we, Italian. So from the, from the U S Italian is probably fourth or fifth. Uh, -huh. um, uh, I think, I think, um, that's interesting. Why Italian? All oh, the food's delicious. That's probably it. That. <laughs> yeah. I, I also, you know, we find that a lot of people learn a language because of their um, ancestry. Mm. So they, you know, there's a lot of people who are kind of Italian American that are learning Italian. So we are, we launched we launched Irish learning Irish. Really? To, to, Is that to like Celtic honest, or? Yeah, yeah, a Gaelic Irish Gaelic. So to be okay. perfectly honest, I didn't actually understand that this was an actual language before I started Duolingo. <laughs> I thought everybody in Ireland spoke English. Uh, and we so we launched it, and it is a lot of people in the U.S. are learning Irish. We have there's there's about we have about a million people learning Irish, which is crazy because the total number of native Irish speakers is only ninety four thousand. Oh my goodness! So we have and and it's most and 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 we we always get a huge jump of the number of people learning it on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> uh, so it's basically it's basically these people who are you know I'm Irish, even though they're probably not <laughs> Irish at all. But that's amazing. Uh, and how much, how long, how, how far along the work? I watched your um, TED talk from about four years ago, uh, where you were talking about mm -hmm. growing your user, ba user base to help get the web translated, and you were discussing how, uh, you know, getting up to a hundred million, you could translate Spanish Wikipedia in eighty hours. Uh, have you done it? Yeah, haven't. <laughs> it is mainly because we've started. We've started really concentrating on. On, not on the translation part, even though the translation was kind of the original motivation. We're still doing it. We still do, the, you know, our users are still translating um, stuff on on the website. Mm -hmm. um, but for example, most of our users are using Duolingo on the mobile apps, about 85%, uh, and the mobile apps don't have any of the translation interfaces. And the reason for that is because we, we've really spent most of our time just trying to figure out how to teach better mm. uh, rather than doing that. So that we just haven't concentrated on that. It's basically, basically what's happened. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, Lila, um, get, tell us how you uh, got started with uh, Samosource initially. What what led you to start start the organization, and also tell us how it's evolved over the years. Sure. Well, um, my parents were were both born outside the United States and grew up in in India, and uh, they would always tell me, you know, eat all the food on your plate because they were starving kids back home. And my brother and I would roll our eyes. We grew up in a suburb in Southern California. And, uh, and global poverty didn't really mean much to me. And then I, I randomly got a scholarship from a big tobacco company and used it to go and work in Ghana in the year 2000, um, right before college for like six months. And I, you know, went over there thinking I would be this savior type who would go and teach all these poor kids English. And I got there and my students, were like running circles around my high school peers. They could, they could recite passages from President Clinton's speech when he went and made an official state visit, and uh, and they were reading. I got them to read Harlem Renaissance poetry, and they were just really bright. And it struck me that 
you know, we, that talent is really equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And that the biggest tragedy was that we'd sort of written off all of these people who make less than 250 a day as these charity cases. You know, we don't really see them as a productive part of society and we certainly don't see them as equals. And so it struck me after talking to many of them that what people needed most in that community was work and that a lot of the aid programs that I had seen on the ground that weren't focused on work, you know, the best way they were helping people was by hiring locals to administer whatever program. And so work just seemed to me the most important thing. And I ended up studying international development and working at the World Bank and working for some big non-governmental organizations. And, and one day ended up um, stumbling into a call center in India where one of the young men in the call center was from Dharavi, which is where Slumdog Millionaire was filmed. Mm. It's one of the largest slums in South Asia. It's got open sewers and cholera outbreaks. And this guy was sitting there taking calls for British Airways you know, commuting into the center on a rickshaw and showing up in this state-of-the-art call center, you know, to to handle customer service complaints from, like, random parts of the U.K. And that, the light bulb went off in my head that day, and I thought, wow, here's somebody who, we've, who we might have written off as a charity case who's totally capable of doing Internet-based work. How many more people are like him out there? And how can we figure out how to take this model of data outsourcing that has created several billionaires now and use it to create a few dollars for the billions of people living in, in poverty. So that was the kernel of the idea. And then I got it started in 2008. I actually found this guy who was my age, he was 25 at the time, and he was running an internet cafe in Nairobi, in Kenya, in the capital. And he told me that he was not able to make much money selling internet time to local youth because it was you know, something like a dollar an hour to cover his costs and people there make $2 a day. So we brainstormed around this idea of taking the outsourcing model and bringing it to Kenya. And I said, well, I can probably find you some contracts if you can find some local youth who meet these income criteria. I was really interested in using this to solve poverty and not hiring, say, middle-class college-educated youth. So he hired a couple people. I found a contract um, back in the U.S., and we did this small pilot project, actually, um, converting PDF texts of books into text files for an audio software program that um, was part of this library for blind readers on the internet called bookshare.org. So the very first project we had was benefiting blind Americans who needed this, um, these transcripts of books to be able to hear them through audio software. And it grew from there. And, and now we have several thousand alumni in the Nairobi, East Africa area, and we've branched out into a number of different types of work. One of our biggest categories of work right now is image tagging for machine learning purposes. So this mm -hmm. is really wild. Um, the algorithms that are behind self-driving cars, for example, require a lot of human, human uh, opinions and human judgments on photographs in order to train the algorithm to recognize what a lane line looks like or what a human body part looks like and either stop the car or, you know, move the car in a certain direction. So we're actually working with a couple of major auto manufacturers now to train their software to do what humans used to do. And so in a way we're using humans to obviate the need for humans in the future, <laughs> <laughs> putting ourselves out of a job in the future. But there's, there's a lot of this kind of work now um, that's coming out of Silicon Valley that makes um, a really good job or creates a really good job for someone who doesn't have a lot of skill but can read and write English and use a computer. Great. 
Um, and Luis, I think a good segue from AI is to you. And um, do you want to talk about your path to Duolingo? Sure. Um, I I guess uh, before Duolingo, I, I, I started a company called ReCAPTCHA, where uh, the idea is it's, it's kind of similar to what um, Lila was talking about, um, where the idea was, so, okay, so first of all, I'll explain what CAPTCHAs are. So CAPTCHAs are these distorted letters that you have to type all over the internet uh, whenever you're trying to buy tickets on Ticketmaster or get a, a Yahoo account or something like that. You have to type these these distorted squiggly characters that are very annoying. Um, those The reason those are there, this is a security measure. The reason those are there are to make sure that you, the entity filling out the form, are actually a human and not a computer program that was written to submit the form millions of times. And the reason it works is because humans can read these distorted characters better than computer programs. Uh, so, for example, in the case of Ticketmaster, the reason you have to type these is to prevent um, prevent scalpers from buying um, from from writing a program that can buy millions of tickets kind of two at a time. Uh, so those those are there. I I actually was one of the people who helped invent those like 15 years ago, and they've been used all over the internet. Um, now. Um, in about 2006 or so, I did a little calculation, which was about um, how many times uh, does a CAPTCHA get typed every day by people around the world. And, and the number that I came up with was about 200 million. So about 200 million times a day, somebody types a CAPTCHA around the world. Mm. Now, when I first heard this number, I was very proud of myself. I thought, look at the impact that my work has had. Um, but then I started feeling bad because I started thinking, uh, not only are these things really annoying, but also each time you type one of these, you waste about 10 seconds of your time. And if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get that humanity as a whole is wasting like 500,000 hours every day typing these annoying captions. Uh, so I started thinking, uh, you know, kind of wondering if there's any way in which we can make good use of this, of this effort, these 10 seconds. Because the thing is, during those 10 seconds, um, your brain is doing something amazing. Your brain is doing something that computers cannot yet do or cannot yet do very well. So the question is, can we get you to do something useful for the world? And this is uh, where I got this idea that we could be getting people to help digitize books. Um, so the idea is the following. And it's, I, I basically started this, this project called ReCAPTCHA, where the idea is that while you're typing a CAPTCHA, not only are you authenticating yourself as a human, but you're also helping us to digitize books. And, and the way it works is that um, you, so, so the book digitization process works as follows. So you start first with a physical book, then you scan it. Now, scanning a, a, a book is, is literally consists of taking a digital photograph of every page of the book. And the next step in the process is that the computer needs to be able to decipher all of the, all of the words in these pictures. But the problem is that for older books where the, where the ink has faded a little bit, uh, the computer cannot recognize many of these words. So what we, but, but humans can. So what we started doing is we started taking all of the words that the computer could not recognize in the book digitization process and we started getting people to read them for us while they type a CAPTCHA on the internet. So the idea is these CAPTCHAs, these security measures, the, the words, the story words started coming from books and they were basically the, the words that the computer could not recognize and we were getting people to, to read them for us basically while they were typing a CAPTCHA. And so that was, that was the idea. Uh, and, and it's a, uh, I say it's very related to, to what Lila was talking about because it is, um, it's basically taking something that just your average human can do uh, that despite kind of 50 years of research in computer science, computers cannot yet do. 
Right. Um, and was the source of it, were the source materials, the books, was it from the Google book scanning project or? Yeah, it started out, it started out from uh, the New York Times. So we were digitizing old, um, old editions of the New York Times, but then Google actually bought this whole process, the whole project, and then it, it started coming from the Google Books project. All the source materials were coming from the Google Books project. Of late, they're also coming from uh, addresses from the Street View cars. So oh, wow. as the cars are driving all over the world, the, they're they're actually taking they're taking photographs of the addresses, and sometimes the computer cannot recognize those numbers. Oh, so now we're getting also people while they're typing captures on the internet, they're also helping to type addresses. I have I have seen a few of those. Yeah, I've typed a few addresses in for Google. Yep, yep. <laughs> you just made the maps the maps more more accurate. Oh boy, what else am I doing? I don't know about. <laughs> uh, so from from there, have you? Is there any way to know at this point how many? things we as humans have mindlessly helped computers translate in this case so um so if you look at so with the volume it's, it's doing about a hundred million quote-unquote words per day helping digitize mm. uh so now a word may be an address uh or a word maybe a word out of a book or something but it's, it's doing a hundred million words a day if these were solely books that's the equivalent of two, the equivalent of two million books a year uh, but since it's doing all kinds of other things, it's kind of, I don't know exactly how many different things it's, it's doing. Now, is there a built-in sort of redundancy to, like, maybe I see it, say, yeah. 721, and someone else says, no, it's 723? Yeah, there is. Um, we do, it, it's a pretty sophisticated system because what happens is that um, at the beginning, so when the computer, the, compu- the first step is that the computer tries to recognize whatever it is, either a word from a book or an address or whatever. The computer first starts to recognize it. Mm. Now, Usually computers have a guess. Uh, it's not like they're, com- well, sometimes they're completely clueless, but usually they have a guess. So they have a guess and also a confidence. So they, uh, the computer may say, well, uh, it looks like 743, but I'm only, I don't know, 32% confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be 744, and I'm 12% confident of that one, et cetera. So it usually has an initial guess along with confidence intervals. Mm. Um, so what we do is whenever the computer is not very sure, that's when we send it to humans. And then we send it to a bunch of humans, and then for each human, we kind of get a signal. And at the end, we combine, you know, what the computer already knew with uh, from each of the humans. And also, you know, for humans, uh, for some of the humans who have done things multiple times, we actually also have how accurate they are. Ah. Uh, so some people are more accurate than others. And so at the end of the day, we combine all of these signals. We say, okay, you said 743, and you're typically 85% accurate. This uh, The computer said 743, but it's only 22% sure. This other person said this other thing, and at the end we come up kind of with a weighted vote. And once the once the whole thing is uh, has, passes a certain level of confidence, it says, "Okay, I'm done." Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and that's kind of the, that's kind of how it works. I would love to know my accuracy. So if you could just find out for me, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lila, um, and this will actually be a question for both of you, but both of your uh, businesses depend on uh, you know working with. Uh, companies in the developing world, right? Creating, um, creating the digital tasks in the case of um, Sama Group, and then uh, Duolingo has a specific uh, business model as well. So, Lila, can you talk about um, the companies you work with and how the business model works for Sama Group? Sure. So we um, we have a really unusual structure. We are a nonprofit, a five hundred one c three. 
And so many people don't know this, but nonprofit doesn't mean non-revenue. You can actually earn revenue through doing the types of things we do, like these contracts for work. And we also rely on donations and grants sort of as our venture capital. So to get our model started before we are making significant amounts of revenue. And we actually should break even on the basis of our earned revenue from these business contracts in about two two to three years, um, which is really unusual in the nonprofit space. Most that have earned income tend to have a smaller percentage of earned revenue. And we love that because it makes us independent of the whims of donors and grant makers, which, you know, change as the fads change in global development and poverty alleviation. So, um, so right now, uh, more than 60% of our revenue comes from contracts with large customers, which include Microsoft, Google, TripAdvisor, Getty Images, and um, about 30 other companies that have data projects, including many startups that we've kind of, that we've grown with over the years. Um, and it was really interesting to hear Luis um, talk. We we have had partnerships with companies like Amazon, which has a platform called Mechanical Turk, for allocating these tasks. And what we found is that we tend to be in that um, in that zone between very very simple tasks that take a couple of seconds to do, and much more complex entire projects that require tons of project management. So we're like in between those two types of outsourcing work. Um, and, and right now we see visibility into getting to sustainability because there's a big – right now there's a lot of demand for high-quality results in this category. We, um, we work with many different organizations on the ground in foreign countries, in East Africa, South Asia, and, and Haiti mostly. And those are uh, really helpful partnerships. We work with job training organizations that have already got – deep roots in, in local communities. For example, in the slums in Nairobi, there are hundreds of local organizations that receive donations to recruit local youth and give them training and soft skills, how to show up on time to work, you know, how to discuss an issue with your manager, et cetera. And so we lean on those organizations as our infrastructure, and we just provide them with this content that they then disseminate to their young people. And, and through that model, we've um, We've been able to train several thousand people now in this Sama School program, and we have a aim to reach um, several million in the coming years as we move the model online. And domestically here in the U.S., we've trained almost 1,000 people now in these digital work skills through a similar model. Um, we work with local organizations like the local YMCA um, in the Bay Area. We we have partnerships with many nonprofits working with youth and we essentially give them this new type of job training that they may not be familiar with. It's kind of shocking to me how few people think, I mean, outside of Silicon Valley, um, how few people really recognize the incredible scale of the gig economy, like the amount of capital moving through sites like Upwork, which is one of the biggest ones. I think Upwork has paid over $2 billion to contractors since it, since it started as two separate companies about a decade ago. Wow. And so um, I think the opportunity is being totally underestimated, especially by policymakers and seen as this interesting little sideshow. But I really think that the, the way the world is working is changing so dramatically. Um, and so a lot of our partners are similarly unaware of this shift and rely on us as this nonprofit that's more tech-oriented and, and in Silicon Valley to guide them. And so a question for you about about some of the clients that sign on um, with you. Is it important to them that they're 
you know, doing good in the world and creating opportunity, or are they just looking for, you know, the best, uh, most efficient way to solve their problems? I had one of my all-time best marketing moments at Sama Source the other day. I was speaking at Dreamforce, the Salesforce conference, with the mm-hmm. CEO of Glassdoor, whose um, Glassdoor is one of our larger clients now. And um, and the CEO said on stage, he's like, I had no idea that Source was a nonprofit until about 10 minutes ago, <laughs> speaking oh. with Lila, I never met before. He said, our team found them just because we thought they were the best and they had the best quality and we compared them to all these other vendors. And I was like, like as a nonprofit CEO, that's just like the best moment you can have because there's so much criticism of the sector and so many people think nonprofits are really inefficient and so um, to be held up like that by one of our clients is really exciting. And I would say that as much as you know, I believe in, in doing good, and I, I believe that this model, we call it impact sourcing, the model of using this kind of digital job creation to reduce poverty. As much as I'm a believer in that, and as much as I care about social justice and poverty, I realize that the majority of people, especially people working in these big companies, just need to get the work done at a high-quality level so that their boss is happy. And so if we can provide the same level of service or better than our for-profit competitors. I think the social mission is a wonderful, um, provides a wonderful stickiness. So it's icing on the cake, but it's not, it can't, it can't be part of the calculus or it won't be sustainable. The cake has to be really tasty, you know, and so, and then if you can be that icing, that's great. And I, I certainly think, I mean, companies love telling the story about what we do to their staff. Outsourcing is typically something that people have tried to hide and sweep under the rug. And so we give them all of these incredible stories of people, you know, what it means to go from $2 to $8 a day, starting from a slum as a young person in Kenya is unbelievable. I mean, it means literally the difference between dying of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, which is a major cause of death in many of these slum areas, just because of the living conditions, you know, going from getting, having a good chance of, of dying from a preventable disease like that to live a healthy life. Um, and so, so people love that story, but of course they only love it if the work is getting done and, and their bosses are happy. Right. So does $8 a day um, in Kenya get you out of that slum? Oh, I mean, $8 a day in Kenya, and, and this is um, just in Kenya. We have different wage levels depending on the region, and obviously in the U.S. that would not be appropriate. Um, $8 a day in Kenya is a, is a very good salary for someone who, especially for someone who comes from that kind of a background. So we see dramatic improvements in housing. Um, that's the first thing people change. Almost all of our workers will move out of the slum in short order after about six months. We see major improvements in the education, not just of the workers, but also of younger siblings in the household who are able to go to school or better school because of increased funding for school fees. Um, another thing that people immediately spend their money on is better food. Sugarcane is actually a staple diet for many people living in slums because it's the cheapest source of calories, mm. but it's obviously just essentially pure sugar. And so we'll see people start whole grains and maybe being able to afford some protein and some beans. And these things sound so unfathomable to someone living in a wealthy city in the U.S., but, but the difference of $6 a day can literally be less than death um, in, yeah. in a place like Unfathomable and humbling. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Luis, let's talk about uh, Duolingo's business model. Sure. So we have um, we have 
the the main business model that we're that we're trying right now. So th- th- there were there are a few. There's one which is this one about getting people to help translate things. Um, so this actually is working, but that is not our main uh, thing. So uh, I'll talk about the non-main one first. So that one, the the way it works is that um, uh, as as people are using Duolingo, um, we say, hey, you know, once they we teach them something at the end of a lesson, we say, hey, if you want to practice what you just learned. Um, can you help us translate this thing uh, that usually somebody help, uh, is paying us to translate? So, for example, CNN is one of our customers. They write all of their news in English. Then um, uh, they send it to us in English. And what we do is to our users who are learning English, we say, hey, uh, if you want to practice your English, do you want to help translate this CNN story to your native language to practice your English? And then people do that. And then they, they kind of a lot of the users translate the same the same story and they collaborate with each other translating the same story to their native language and then we send in the translation and they pay us for having translated that. Uh, that is a business model that is currently working but it is not our main business model mainly because we spend most of our time just trying to figure out how to teach better and we found that the more time we spent on this translation stuff the more uh, we got away from the teaching. So we decided to start a second business model which is um, charging for certification so it works as follows. Um, it, it all started about two years ago. Our, so many of our users were, were telling us things like, hey, thank you for teaching me English. Uh, I wasn't able to afford learning English before, uh, but now I have a problem, which is that uh, I need to have a certificate that shows that I know English, uh, either to be able to apply to a university or to get a job at some corporation or something. They, they needed a certificate to show that they knew English. So what we did is we started looking at this whole English language certification business, and we found something crazy. Um, so the right now, so the, all of this I didn't know before before Duolingo. So it turns out uh, about fifteen billion dollars a year are spent on people certifying that they know English. And wow. The way they, they the way they do that is um, and and there's all kinds of reasons for that. One is if you ever want to apply to a university here in the U.S. from a non-English speaking country, you have to certify that you know English, or if you ever want to work for an international corporation, you have to certify that you know English. There's all kinds of reasons why you have to certify that. Uh, now, uh, when um, when we started looking how people certify, it, it's pretty similar how people certify that they know English. Basically, it, you have to take a standardized test. So you have to, there's a few of these standardized tests. One of them is called the TOEFL. So that's the one that's used for uh, applying to U.S. universities. Um, but there's other ones. And all of them work in an, this insane kind of 18th century way, which is it costs about $250. Uh, you, you have to, if you, if you want to get certified, you have to go take the test to a testing center, which is a physical kind of testing center. Um, usually you have to make an appointment about three or four weeks in advance. You have to pay 250 bucks. You have to go to a testing center to take the test. And then you have to wait another four or so weeks to get your, your certificate. So the whole process ends up taking about eight weeks, and you have to, you know, you have to go to a physical place and you have to pay 250 bucks. Now this sounds just annoying, but most of the people that are um, paying for um, uh, these certifications are actually in developing countries, and for them, 250 dollars is a lot of money. And not only that, uh, these uh, testing centers are not in every little town; they're usually only in the big cities. So. Uh, to certify that you know English, you usually have to travel. So the whole the whole thing just seems ridiculous. You have to travel, you have to pay 
what's like a month's salary, uh, and you just this crazy thing. So we decided we could do do better. So what we did is we made an app um, where we certify that people know English um, from the app itself. And uh, the way it works, the, the key about certifying that somebody knows English is you got to make sure that they're not cheating. This is why you have to go to a physical testing center to certify that you know English because you know you got to make sure that you are who you say you are and not your cousin who actually speaks English, and also that you didn't show up with ten English books to kind of uh, answer by looking at the books. So the way we certify that people are not actually cheating is we actually turn on the the phone's camera and also the um, the microphone to record ambient noise and we actually recording taking the test on, on their mobile device. Hmm. And then afterwards, a real human watches the whole test to make sure that the person, first, uh, they are who they say they are, and second, that they weren't actually cheating. Um, so that's kind of how, how it works. And then our test, instead of $250, is actually $20. Uh, and partly, part of the reason it's $20 is because we have to pay somebody to, to watch while you take the test, so it, it brings up the price. Uh, but but we, we think that this, this just makes it a lot a lot better. And that's that's probably our main business model. Yeah. No. Where is the person watching the test? Uh, it depends. Uh, we have we have contractors in in all kinds of different places, but basically they're they're not where the person taking the test is usually. Uh, okay. But we, we have. So we we should um we should do a deal. Maybe they could be in Kenya or Uganda. I'd be happy to do that. This is actually well, something that can be done. They don't even need to know English all that well because they're not certifying the. English yeah. part. They're just certifying that they're not looking elsewhere and that they are who they say they are, basically. Uh, so, guys, what we've been doing on uh, all of the Make Tech Human podcasts is we've asked our guests uh, a couple of core questions for the whole program. Uh, and I'll ask uh, the first question, and you guys can both answer. And that is uh, it's a, sort of a general question. It's what, what excites you about uh, where technology is headed? So, uh, Luis, I'll ask you first. Um, well, I think that we are, um, you know, if you look at the web particularly, uh, or, or kind of the internet, um, we started out, you know, I started out by being able to send uh, emails from one person to another, and then and we started being able to send pictures and videos, etc. What we're starting to see more and more is people really doing very meaningful things online, like working online, or getting an education online, or uh, you know, even going to the doctor online. I think we're starting to get really meaningful, uh, see really meaningful interactions of things that are not just, uh, you know, sending an email. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're going to be seeing that more and more. And I think to, what excites me, the, one of the things that excites me the most about that is just the fact that I, I think this is really starting to allow us to um, equalize the world. And now, this is a funny thing. I mean, I think the internet can both equalize and also bring inequality to the world. Um, but uh, hopefully, if if we work towards the right things, we, I think we can start really bringing in a lot more equality to the world uh, and, and allowing, you know, being able to give equal access to education to everybody, being able to give equal access to employment to everybody, equal access to health care to everybody. I think this is the types of things that, that technology will hopefully be able to do in the next century. Mm. Uh, and the same question for you, Layla. Well, it was such a good segue. You know, Sama means equal, and we're we're all about the message that uh, Luis just gave. I, I would say that 
you know, if you look at human history, our circle of empathy for most of human history and prehistory has been, you know, wide enough to encompass our tribe mm. or maybe a band of people of about a hundred and whatever, 110, 120 people. Right. And then with industrialization and the move into cities and, and before that agriculture, our circle of empathy widened to encompass people that we worked with in corporations and other types of organizations and churches. And fundamentally what technology does is it blows open that circle of empathy and theoretically should make us empathetic towards everyone else who's connected, whose picture we can see on Facebook, whose voice we can hear, you know, who maybe are contributing data to sites like Duolingo. Um, and I think that's what's so remarkable and so unique about technology. I mean, ultimately, technology is amoral. It's like roads. It's just infrastructure. It's, it's all about how we wield it. And I think if we choose to build systems undergirded by technology that increase opportunity for everyone, um, you know, and, and we continue to think about our circle of empathy as ever widening and that we have a moral duty to someone in Timbuktu that's the same as the moral duty that we have to someone in Tennessee, that really geography is pretty insignificant in terms of the, you know, in terms of, of our moral connectedness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's what's so exciting to me about technology. I, I've, I have found, I'll just end with this one story. I, I met a young man in rural Kenya in Dadaab in this refugee camp who came from South Sudan, who'd lived his whole life in these god-awful refugee camps. And he, after meeting me and doing some Sama Source work, independently found Facebook and started messaging me on Facebook. And we stayed in touch. And over the years, he started building his internet proficiency. And he used, um, he used email to follow his asylum status, which is almost, I think, ready to be granted by the U.S. Embassy in Kenya. So this young man will have a chance to live a decent life since his homeland is still in turmoil. And to me, that's the promise of the Internet. And the fact that I can tell his story and I can point people to his Facebook profile, people in the State Department, (laughs) um, that is not insignificant. Mm. People's circle of empathy has widened to encompass this young man who was, you know, a lost boy from South Sudan. So I think that's the promise. But again, we can't just expect that this is going to happen automatically. We have to wield technology in the right way in ways that broaden our circle of empathy and recognize the dignity of every human being, not just those who are in close proximity. Right. Uh, well, that that sort of brings us to uh, the final question, which is, uh, at least we'll get you out of here. Uh, what concerns you about where technology is headed? I, I like I like what uh, Lila said about technology being immoral. I, I think I'm not particularly concerned about technology itself. I'm more concerned about mm-hmm. people just finding out ways to um, use it for, uh, usually to take advantage of others. Yeah. I think that's usually the, the, the case. I mean, you, you get to see a lot of this stuff with privacy or a lot of, you know, you see a lot of companies just trying to cut costs this way or another or, or trying to, um, um, you know, get more of our information. But I, I'm not particularly concerned about the technology itself. I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things, where, you know, even medicine can be used for bad things. Right. Just, I, I don't, I, so I, I don't, I'm not particularly concerned about technology itself. I'm, I'm just more concerned about, uh, it's, it's one of those things that I think can, because everybody's so connected, I think we can, it can yield a lot of power and in the wrong hands, these are, these are the things we, you know, that's the type of thing we should worry about. The fact that now few companies, few people just have a lot of, um, a lot of power, uh, and that, uh, you know, is hopefully, hopefully 
you know, so far I don't think it's been used for tremendous, tremendous evil where, you know, somehow the whole world is uh, at, the, at, uh, at the mercy of one evil, you know, startup founder or anything like that. But I, right. hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> uh, we should keep an eye on all the startup founders, just in case. Uh, Layla, same, same Lila, here. what are you worried about? So um, I'm, I'm not worried about technology. I, I agree with Louise, and I think that the biggest problem is, our, is that our political and economic systems evolved in a very different time. Um, so, you know, during the period of industrialization, we built these companies, and corporations became the dominant, you know, the dominant agents of power in the world. And that was okay because corporations needed a lot of workers to grow their revenues. And now, because of technology and automation, you need far fewer workers to produce the same level of economic output and sustain people, which in theory should be a wonderful thing. It should mean we should all have a lot more time for leisure and making art and teaching language to our kids and, you know, various other care-based activities that haven't really been valued in capitalism. But I think our, our political and economic systems are still stuck on the old industrialized model. And so we haven't really brought those systems along um, in this new world where wealth is very quickly aggregating to fewer, f fewer and fewer people at the top. And that's creating a divided society in which, you know, the people who have the power and the resources don't really understand what life is like for everyone else. Um, and I say this, you know, as someone who lives on one of the coasts who spends a lot of time talking to rich people at conferences to raise money. So I'm probably one of those people. But I, I am aware, especially when I come to places like rural Arkansas, that there is a large swath of humanity that does not have power in these new dynamics. And I think that really needs to be a conversation that we have at a national and, and one day international level, because I think personally the only way we solve a lot of these issues is is um, more global governance of the way that corporations and other multinational entities behave. Um, and again, it, it's interesting to me that though technology is behind a lot of these shifts in our economic system, it's not necessarily behind a lot of the problems. The problems are arising because we're using old models of governance um, to deal with very new problems. My biggest concern is rising wealth inequality and also the the power dynamics that accompany that. And I think if we want to build a society that's good for everyone, a more peaceful, you know, verdant and just world, we have to look to changing the political and economic systems because what got us here isn't going to keep us going. Great point. Uh, guys, uh, that, that does it uh, for the Make Tech Human podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Lila, we can check you out at we can go to samasource.com. Well, you must be a .org, right? Yeah, we're um, samasource.org or samaschool.org, mm -hmm. and people can sign up for a free online class at Samaschool. Excellent. And, uh, of course, uh, Luis, we can uh, go to Duolingo and we can learn Italian or uh, this new language called Irish. Uh, we're all very excited. <laughs> or Klingon. <laughs> oh, Klingon. are you really going to have Klingon? That's yes, amazing. Very for the universe. Oh, Matt's going to do Klingon. That's amazing. Look, the universe needs to be a safer place as a whole, and we're working on that. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Get to know your Klingon uh, words. I know a few, but uh, we don't need to get into that now. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a wonderful week. Thank uh, you, too. You. All right. Thank Great you, both. Thank Bye. you so much. And that does it for today's episode of Make Tech Human. 
I can't believe how brilliant Luis and Lila are. It's I, I, every week on this podcast, I talk to people who just fascinate me to no end, and I'm more and more impressed by every guest that we have. And, you know, these two people are two of the Make Tech Human Agents of Change. And guess what? There's 15 more of these people out there. And you can check out the list on wired.com forward slash make tech human. You can see all 17 agents of change. Uh, but that does it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Make Tech Human podcast presented by Wired and enabled by Nokia. This podcast is part of the broader Nokia and Wired Make Tech Human debate about the possibilities, challenges, and tensions at the nexus of humanity and technology. For more information, of course, you can go to the website. I'll give the URL one more time. It's wired.com forward slash make tech human. And please join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag make tech human. I'm at Matt Myra. It turns out I did not make the list. Okay.